Welcome, everyone, to episode 64 of Some Like It Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we are completing the trifecta of 2019 Stephen King adaptations with our review of Dr. Sleep. And just like our previous two reviews of King movies this year, alongside me, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. But more importantly, we have our guest, Danny Kunkel. Danny, Scott, how are you two doing today? I'll start with Danny since she's more important, I guess. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. Excited to be back again. Like you said, finish out the trilogy here. So how are you, Scott Harvey? Besides a little <laughs> I'm butt? great. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, no, uh, I'm good, uh, Scott and Danny. I uh, have had a slightly more low-key weekend, which is good because we didn't even get to do an episode last weekend, Scott, um, yep. because our schedules, mostly my schedule, were so crazy. But got to catch up with uh, this movie and then uh, Jojo Rabbit as well, So, which I highly recommend, by the way. So. Yeah. yeah, hoping to see Jojo Rabbit very soon, maybe later today. We we shall see how where my day takes me after this recording, but uh, looking forward to that one and also just kind of wrote out a list of movies for the rest of the year that I was hoping to see. And I was like, all right, I've got plenty of movies to go see for the rest of the year. Ford v. Ferrari next week, I'm hype. Yeah, we only have a month. I mean, so some of those movies are coming out in January technically, but we only have a month and a half left of the year, uh, yeah. which is which is kind of crazy considering I think I have over 20 movies still on my list to watch. So I'm probably there with, right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, we won't uh, keep our listeners waiting any longer. Let's go ahead and take the gloves off to discuss Dr. Sleep, Mike Flanagan's adaptation of the sequel to the legendary 1977 Stephen King novel turned 1980 Stanley Kubrick film. This one primarily picks up about 40 years after the events of The Shining and follows Danny, now Dan Torrance, played by Ewan McGregor, who is haunted by his past and has turned to repressing his shining abilities through late nights at bars, along with one-night stands with strangers. After finally finding peace in a New Hampshire town, Dan is brought back into the world of The Shining when he telekinetically befriends a young girl named Abra, played by Kylie Curran, who has particularly strong shining abilities. Abra has learned of a small band of quasi-immortal beings called the True Knot, who stalk and murder children with shining abilities to prolong <coughs> their own lives, and are who, led, who are led by Rebecca Ferguson's Rose the Hat. After Abra is discovered as a looker to one of the True Knot's torture murders, she becomes their next target, and Dan is left with a choice to lean into the world he has fought his whole life to escape in order to protect Abra or to continue to hide away from his past. Danny, we'll start with you first. What did you think of Dr. Sleep? Did you find it to be a mesmerizing and satisfying follow-up to one of the all-time horror classics? Or, just like Snakebite Andy, did it put you straight to sleep? I felt that it was definitely that first one and mesmerizing something about the classic. <laughs> um, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I just like, it was kind of long obviously. And we, I'm sure we'll hear from Scott Harvey about the the length of the movie, but I remember sitting there and, and I realized that it was taking a while, but I was like, wow, but I'm really enjoying every minute of it. So I didn't mind how long it was. I felt like it didn't try to do like part of our complaints, obviously with it chapter two was that it did so many callbacks to the original and so many shots from the original film. 
And I really liked that this one was like uh, Scott Harvey pointed out after he like read from some review, it did its best to be its own movie for as long as possible. And then kind of tied back closer to the first one. Um, So that's what I appreciated about it. I also liked that it was almost an action film mixed in with horror, mixed in with supernatural. It was kind of a unique twist on the genre that I felt like I hadn't seen before. So overall, I was a really, really big fan of this movie. Yeah, no, I uh, I really enjoyed it as well. I think that uh, I, I think about this movie because Stephen King um, famously did not enjoy The Shining, the movie that Stanley Kubrick adapted. Of course, it, like you said, Scott, it has become a horror classic, but Stephen King notoriously not a fan. And he has said in the lead up to Dr. Sleep that um, if you like The Shining, you will like this movie. However, if you like The Shawshank Redemption, you will also like this movie which I think is an interesting comment, um, but pretty on point, honestly. I mean, who better to, to say than Stephen King? But I think it's pretty on point because I think that like The Shawshank Redemption, this movie, Dr. Sleep, is far more authentic, has a far more authentic Stephen King feel to it than Stanley Kubrick's The Shining did. Um, and I think that's because, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it has this sort of epic, like episodic feel, which obviously Shawshank has, which obviously, um, like some of my other favorite Stephen King books, like 11, 22, um, have. Um, yeah, it has, and, the, it has the big set pieces for sure. Yes, yeah, it has, and it has like the retro vibe going on the whole time. You have like the strong emphasis on character development before just like throwing you right, like face first into the horror, which is always something that I'm going to appreciate. And I think that's something that made the first it movie work so well was the emphasis on character development. I mean, you have like almost an hour of story before you really get into the um, depths of the, the horror and it. And I think that um, they do a similarly successful job here, just establishing um, sort of the, the three different timelines that are going on, one with Danny Torrance, one with Abra and her family, and then the, uh, the I forget what they're called, but the, 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 gypsy, the gypsy vampires. Um, the true knot. Yeah, uh, the true knot, right, um, with Rebecca Ferguson. Um, and I thought they were all fascinating. And to Danny's point, I think that even though the movie is long, I was pretty engaged throughout. I, I think that um, Scott, obviously I complain about long movies a lot, but with the exception of it, and there have been a lot of long movies this year, but with the exception of it chapter two, I think the long movies are undefeated so far. They've all been really good. Um, and that's encouraging to see. Um, and hopefully that will continue with the Irishman, which is even an hour longer than this movie. So, um, yeah, that's, that's going to be trying, but at least I'll have Netflix. But anyway, yeah, this movie's great. Um, I agree with what Danny said, um, that this movie succeeds also because it, it, it does its own thing. Like, I think that it would have been easy. And obviously it's helpful that it has a book to go off of, that it has a sequel to go off of. It's not just like, you know, what's a good movie? The Shining. We should make a sequel to The Shining. No, like there's a whole, you know, 800,000 page novel probably that Stephen King wrote. Um, 500 page novel, but yeah. Okay. Well, that's average length of some of his novels, to be honest. But no, um, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so it has that to go off of, which is good. But um, I think the movie somehow succeeds at both being an adaptation of King's book and a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's movie. Um, and it does so by building its own narrative again, uh, like, like Danny has pointed out for a large portion of the movie. And then it does dive into that nostalgia at the end. But at that point, I think it's earned the right to do so. And, you know, I was so invested in the um, story that was going on prior that I was like, when, when, when something happens in the climax of the film, uh, they, a decision happens, um, 
And we won't say what that is, even though a lot of people probably know. But um, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even see this coming. Like, I, I wasn't I wasn't asking for this to happen. But if this is going to happen, then cool. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm shocked you didn't see that coming. But I know yeah. maybe it's just me being dumb because apparently there was even some hints in the trailer. But um, it's probably me being dumb. But either way, the point is, I was so invested in the real story, like in the story that this movie had created that I you know, didn't really care about whether they went fully back to The Shining or not. Um, and so that is a, a huge credit to what Mike Flanagan has done here as director. I think that uh, he has created a movie that is both a sequel to The Shining, but also a very successful standalone horror movie and a great adaptation uh, that feels very faithful to what Stephen King does so well. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, no, I agree. So, you know, at, <clears throat> our listeners probably know that I'm not the biggest fan of, of horror movies. And so I haven't, I definitely haven't seen many of the classic horror movies and have only seen a handful here and there, even, even more recently since we started doing the podcast and seeing more movies. But to me, I, so I caught up on The Shining on Friday night and then saw this movie on Saturday night. Was not a huge fan of, of the first Shining. And I think that I, I do see some similar problems. Uh, and I can talk about those a little bit later on between the original Shining and Dr. Sleep as well. But I think that Dr. Sleep is far superior, in my opinion, to The Shining. I think that, Danny, you make a really good interesting point, and it stuck out to me that this really feels like a 2019 blockbuster action horror movie, which isn't what I expected, and is definitely not what the original Shining is. And I thought that that was a really great way, and really a really great way to engage the audience in a way of some people who, you know, if you enjoyed The Shining, to your point, Scott, you're absolutely still going to get a lot of that. And I think you do, especially in those early parts uh, of Dr. Sleep. But then for those people who you know also want something a little bit different than the original Shining and want something a little bit more modern, so to speak, you get that as well with a couple of those epic set pieces that that you were describing, Scott. And, and I think it, it really balances everything perfectly and it makes for a really watchable experience. Uh, I thought the movie was a little bit slow to start, especially for a critique that I'll get into in a second, which I, uh, is related to that character development that you were talking about. But when you really put everything together at the end of the 150 minute plus runtime, I felt like I it had gone by really quickly. Basically, I didn't feel like uh, it was wasted time or I didn't spend too much of that runtime thinking about, oh, wow, this is going on for really long because, you know, every sequence it moves, it keeps moving forward. It keeps moving on to the next part and it doesn't dwell too long uh, on any one place or any one character or any one time. And so I think that that makes it really, really interesting and en engaging in that way. As for some of the other parts of the plot, like one of the things that I really did like about the original Shining is that amazing cinematography. And I think this one doesn't quite hit that bar uh, because, I mean, honestly, just spectacular work in, in the first movie. But the callbacks that you get, the nostalgic callbacks you get, both in terms of cinematography, also uh, with the score and the setting as well, when you um, just, you know, those, those callbacks that happen over the course of the film, I think those parts I, I really appreciated and I thought they were done really well and to both of your points uh did not overdo it uh too much so to speak uh even if you know certain parts of the movie lean more into that than others i thought it was it was done in a way that made sense to you know, the overall part of the story and wasn't just for the sake of nostalgia as for the performances we're going to dive deeper here in a little bit of a second but uh i just i mean i just got to say some really great performances in this one i think the supporting cast uh isn't necessarily mia but there are those three central figures that you get between Dan, between Abra, and between Rose the Hat, I think they're all fantastic performances and really excited to talk about those a little bit more in depth in a second. But overall, really enjoyed this film. 
I do, I do think there are a couple of critiques that I want to get into and get your thoughts because I wonder if you guys will agree with me. Uh, but overall, anything else you guys want to add before we jump into the performances? I'll just say that I think one of the reasons that it doesn't drag is, again, because of that episodic feel that it's like there are a yeah. bunch of like small stories going on inside. And it's like you get to the end of one, but then that naturally feeds into another one. So it's never boring because you're always moving on to something else. So I think that's why it succeeds. Awesome. Well, I think on that note, I mean, I, I talked about there's three central performances in the film, and I'd love to just kind of go around the horn here and, and you know, hear from you guys. Who was a standout performance? What is the performances that you want to talk about? Um, we have Ewan McGregor, of course, as as Dan Torrance. We have Kylie Curran as Abra, and we have Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. Do you guys want to talk about those three? Are there people, members of the supporting cast you'd like to talk about? Danny, we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I mean, those three sound great to me. Rebecca Ferguson's performance as Rose was definitely my favorite of the film, so I would love to dive into that. I also liked uh, Snake by Andy. I thought she was fun, um, but obviously not like a main character with any sort of development or something. I just thought she was entertaining. But um, yeah, so I guess I'll just start with Rebecca yeah, go for it. Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. All right. I want to start with her because I liked her best. I thought she was just so like cool, so powerful. And even though I'm rooting against her because she's like the bad guy of the film, part of me was kind of like, man, she's pretty cool. Like I'm almost rooting for her, but obviously she's doing very horrible things. So then, you know, you root against her in the end, but I'm just saying she was like a powerful leader, had her whole like squad brainwashed. It was really interesting. Um, I thought it was cool. I loved her interactions with Abra when they were like fighting it out, I guess, so to speak. I just thought that they were really, really like the, the filming of it was so cool and the effects were so cool and just watching the two of them interact was really cool. And I don't know, I don't, I'm at a loss for words, but it was just phenomenal. I loved it so much. Scott, what about you? Yeah, no, I, I also loved the performance of Rebecca Ferguson. I think the Joker can eat his heart out because this is the best villain that we've seen this year um, for my money. I think that uh, it's a very strange character. I think, Danny, part of what you're talking about is like there's like this weird sort of like seductive air to her character. And that's why even when she's doing awful things, you're like, oh, this is like she's cool and powerful and all this stuff. Um and I think, it, yeah, it's there's there's a weird edge to it, which I like for a mainstream movie. Um, and I think that she starts off right like she does give off that like I'm very cool and powerful. But as the movie goes on, we're like, oh, maybe she's not as powerful as we thought or compared to Abra, especially the, um, you know, she she's uh, sensing some weaknesses that she hasn't sensed before. And I, at that point, I think there's like anger that comes out of her performance, which uh, I thought was very effective. So um She's, you know, been fantastic in other movies, Rebecca Ferguson. I think this is just further proof that uh, she needs to be in more stuff. Um, so I really liked her performance. I think that looking elsewhere, um, the other lead performances are strong that you've mentioned. I think that Ewan McGregor, I think that, that his character probably isn't as well developed as it could be. I don't think that they necessarily explore as fully as they could the, sort of the fallout from what happened in the first shining movie and how that has affected him. We get some of yeah. that. Um, obviously he's an alcoholic. We see him at AA meetings, um, that type of stuff. Um, but I don't know in terms of like the psychological, what that did to him, we don't fully get it. I don't think. Um, but I, I still think that Ewan McGregor um, does a nice job. And I think that Kylie Curran, um, yes, yeah, 
I mean, she's a star. This is one of the many movies we've seen this year with great child acting in it. And um, I think uh, she, you know, gives a very good account of herself, is very composed and confident on screen for someone of her age. Um, and I enjoyed the performance. And at last note, I do want to give a shout out to two supporting performances. Um, Carol Stroykin, uh, famously Lurch from the Adams Family and uh, the giant from Twin Peaks. He, uh, he is Grandpa Fleck, who is like the old guy who's been alive for like thousands of years. That's part of the, the cult that Rebecca Ferguson uh, runs. And then uh, Carl Lumley, who appears briefly as uh, Halloran, which is the Scatman Crothers character from The Shining. And I thought he reprised that role very effectively in a couple of scenes. Yeah, no, I, I think that I guess starting starting with Kylie Curran and I'll work backwards uh, and end with Rebecca Ferguson. But Kylie Curran, I think, is a it's a great performance for her on screen. You're right, Scott. There have been a lot of great child acting performances, especially when you compare it to The Shining, where I who I, is it Danny Floyd? Is that who played? I think so. Not yeah, somebody who ever did not anything good. Else, right? yeah. Not a good performance. <laughs> um, which you know he can share with Shelley Duvall, who didn't give a very good performance in The Shining either. Ooh, controversial. Uh, is it? She got nominated for a Razzie that year. Uh, but there's been a if you if you read articles nowadays, like there's been a huge flip in what people feel about Shelley Duvall's performance. I've seen some articles recently saying that, like, actually, this performance is like integral to what how The Shining is successful. But, well, maybe that's where me and all those articles are because I don't know if yeah. it was successful. Um, but anyway, I think that no, I think I think that that it's a it's a clear step up from the child acting performances that you get in The Shining, in my opinion. And I think she does a really good job. I think that you know this character of Abra. Is is a little bit of an archetype, as in like this really all like almost altruistic hero character who wants to use her powers for good and do things with that. And in many ways, there's not too much nuance to that character. But at the same time, I think she, if there's a single character who who can't be super nuanced in this film, I think it's probably this person. Uh, she's a child, after all. Child, children are often not very complex, and they're in one dimensional nature. They haven't had time to develop those nuances. Her steam's pure still. Uh, to, to use that line line for the book. And I think that that's part of it. And so I think she does a really good job portraying that. And I think where I'd be more critical of that nuance is when we talk about Ewan McGregor, not necessarily his performance, but Dan Torrance as a character. I think my biggest disappointment in the film, uh, which I think was largely true for almost everyone in The Shining, is that I just think it's a super one-dimensional character and it really lacks a lot of nuance in terms of the character development that you were talking about, Scott. I think that I, I was really disappointed for a two and a half hour runtime to feel like I didn't actually learn that much about Dan, besides the fact that uh, he's an alcoholic. He overcame it by moving to a New Hampshire town and becoming friends with Billy and like getting a job that made him feel like he had a little bit of purpose with the shining abilities. I just think that's super underexplored and super underdeveloped. And then even towards the end as, as well, he clearly cares about, about, you know, he cares about Abra. He has that like goods. I don't know. He, ha he has that budding good Samaritan spirit of himself, like wanting to use his powers for good when he knows that, you know, he's been trying to hide away from them for so long. But I just think that the, all all of those all those conclusions that you draw and all those things that you uh, infer from this are – you have to jump to those conclusions, so to speak, because I just don't think that it spends very much time developing Dan as a character beyond that very surface level interpretation of – how he's dealing with things. And I think that was my biggest disappointment because that was my biggest, biggest disappointment in the shining was that I thought Jack, I thought Dan, well, I mean, Dan's a kid, so that's hard to hold him against him there. But like, I thought Jack and I, I'm actually forgetting the name of the mom right now. Wendy, Wendy. I thought both, both of them were like very prototypical 
characters uh like i didn't think the biggest sin i think was in in the film was that jack is incredibly one-dimensional and i would argue he doesn't even change that much at all like he's an abusive husband and and father from the get-go of the movie and it's not like he's that different at the end uh when is you know when when dan and wendy are, are able to kind of overcome him in in the maze and um and and leave him there for for dead and i think that that's the biggest the the, the most disappointing aspect of that that None of the characters were interesting. And I think that it is a, Dan is a step forward in this movie. He is more interesting. You get a little bit more nuance, but I still felt like lacking of the narrative from that perspective. And it's only because I think that you have a character like Abra who balances that out a little bit and kind of is that sort of beacon of hope for Dan in, in a way, like realizing like what he could have done with his powers, what he could have been and, and, and something to strive toward that it's able to to balance it out and salvage it a little bit. And then particularly Rose the Hat, Rebecca Ferguson's performance. I 100% agree with you, Scott. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily heads and head and shoulders above Joker, because I think that there's a lot, it's a lot, very different character and and has different nuances in, in certain ways. But in terms of a performance that I enjoyed, I think Rebecca Ferguson is head and shoulders above Joaquin Phoenix's performance, mainly because, yes, these characters are doing different things. And I don't think you, Joaquin Phoenix is trying to make you love the Joker, but I think Rebecca Bergen is trying to make you fall in love with Rose the Hat exactly the way you're describing Danny. And she does it perfectly. She has that charisma. She has that charm. You can understand how, you know, she's able to seduce these people to join their group. It's unclear how long she's been a part of of the true knot because it sounds like someone like Grandpa Flick has been has been there the longest, maybe. You know, you get a little bit of that lore uh when he is cycling uh about halfway through the movie. But I think that this character is mesmeric on screen. If there's a point of the movie that you say, you know, this is what was mesmerizing about the film. It's this performance. And in the early going in early parts of the movie where I thought it was a little bit slow, it was that particular performance. that I think engages you kind of draws you in hooks you and gets you through to that part where I think everything is, is balanced a little bit better and, and comes to fruition. You yeah, know, I agree. I th- and I think on the point about Danny and Abra, I agree that, Probably the best scenes that you and McGregor gets is when they're on screen together. I think, and to, I think that's to go back to the Shawshank comparison for a second. I think Stephen King does a great job of writing these like uh, relationships between these two outsider characters. Um, like in Shawshank, you have Red, who's the guy who's been there in prison for a long time and knows his way around, and uh, then you have Andy, who is kind of the you know Abra character. He's like the beacon of hope. Like this is the type of guy that you don't get in prison. Um, and I think that uh, that relationship is kind of uh, similar, analogous to what we get um, here with with Danny and Abra. So I I liked their relationship a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess just the note on the supporting cast. I think that I like most of the members of the True Knot. I think that some of them are particularly good. I'm forgetting the name of the character right now. Who is I think it's Crow. I can't remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he was Crow scary. Danny. He was scary. Yeah. yeah. Zahn McLarnon, I think he is probably the best of, of that True Knot group, and I really appreciate that. The problem is with the True Knot is that it's just so overshadowed by everything that Rebecca Ferguson is doing that it's hard to, to remember. But there is a particular scene that we can talk about uh, when we talk about the plot where uh, I do think that Crow Daddy get, gets, his, gets his time to shine, uh, even if it's short-lived uh, thereafter. But yeah, I think at that point, why not move on to the plot? I think there's a couple different arcs to talk about. I mean... One of the ones, if you're talking about a, a through line from The Shining, is, of course, the arc that Danny goes through. Uh, I know you you talked about this, Scott, about Stephen King not liking The Shining very much. And one of the reasons is that it makes the movie more about Jack 
uh, and not in a good, not necessarily in a good way. I, I from my understanding of what Stephen King was saying, uh, then about Danny and the book is more about Danny, but it, it, it's, it's told from his perspective. It's told from his experiences uh, in the overlook. And I think that this movie does try to take a more significant part of it and make it about Danny and make it about Danny's experiences. And I'd love to hear from you guys what you what you think uh, about that arc that Danny goes through, and then we'll take the gloves off here in a few minutes, probably talk spoilers towards that you know that final act of the movie, and, and how you think that fits together with with the arc that that were that these two movies kind of creates for Danny. So yeah, I think that I agree with you, Scott Shelton. Generally, that the character arc could have been more developed. I think that for me, one scene in particular that stood out as like kind of showing us that there's some missing character development for Danny was when he got the chip for completing like eight years of soberness with the AA. And he gave that speech about like relating to his dad and how like he would drink to like connect to his dad. And that for me felt like this weird, like, and we kind of at the end see a callback of him trying to connect to his dad. But like that part of his character for me was almost it felt like a throwaway because we didn't really go into that anymore. And whether that's their way of trying to explore, like how he's dealing with the aftermath of everything or what, I don't know. But that for me was one scene where I was like, okay, that speech was really weird. And I don't get how this plays into the rest of it. And I also felt like there were other aspects of his character too, that they developed, but it didn't feel like it was like, him pushing the development for example when he needed to help abra it wasn't like he just decided to help her and you know realize that he needed to assist her it was because um is his name mr halloran it's because he had come back and been like no dude you gotta you gotta assist him you can't or you gotta assist her you can't just like leave her out to dry it wasn't really like he had this growth to make that decision and again for me that was sort of like, okay, he eventually grew to appreciate his role in Abra's life as a mentor and and a protector to her, but it wasn't self-motivated. So it felt a little bit more unsatisfying to me. But overall, I felt like we got a good taste of what Danny's life looked like as an adult. We did get to see him kind of initially dealing with the repercussions of, you know, having what, of what happened in The Shining at the Overlook. And we kind of saw him grow, but they sort of skipped over that eight year period where I feel like we maybe would have seen more of that growth and how he coped with everything. Yeah. Side note, what was the deal with the baby? Good question. We don't know. Because at the beginning of the movie, I thought, oh, he's had like a child with some someone and this is like his kid that he's now responsible for or whatever. And I feel like no. they don't follow through on that at all. No, wait, are you talking about after he gets like blackout drunk, the bar gets in the fight, sleeps with a woman. Yeah. But there's, there's a baby that it, he, the baby shows up like multiple times. Where else does the baby show up? He's Which? in that room. He's sleeping that one day and like the arm is on him. Yeah. 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 I think that's just, it happened. It happens twice. Well, when else anyway, does it happen? It's probably a, a diversion, but well, uh, I mean, I interpret it as like these these like acts that he's done are like haunting him. I didn't read it as more than that. I definitely didn't read it as it was his kid. I could be wrong about that. But. Well, that's just what I thought at the beginning. But I, I don't know. It was probably a, a diversion. But um, yeah, 
I think that I mean I think I think you know we talk about the length of the Scott. Well, I'll go back to you in a second, but we talk about yeah. the length of the movie. I think there are plenty of things that could have been like this movie could have been shorter for sure. And you're talking about a scene right now that like I don't know, did you really need that? I don't know. Like there are other parts too that I think go on for a long part of, period of time that maybe they're being used for nostalgic purposes. I think sometimes they're being used for nostalgic purposes. Sometimes they're just allowing you to kind of live in this world that they've created and. And I, I think it works effectively overall, but it definitely could have cut down some of these parts. And I think this is one of them uh, wouldn't have necessarily uh, removed any nuance or additional understanding from the film. But go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I think that what the movie does successful is, you know, convey this idea that Danny is running from his past and that, you know, he, he he's trying to escape what, ha you know, is happening at the Overlook, but ultimately he's not able to. And I think that's where that, that scene with Halloran comes in that you're talking about, Danny. I think that he's initially hesitant to help her because, you know, this is a part of himself that he doesn't really like to acknowledge. He doesn't want to... Um, you know, interact with, uh, he, he doesn't want to go back into the world where people are shining and everything. Um, and so he needs that one figure from his past that is like, he has a positive association with that being Halloran, um, to be the one to be like, look, you need to do this. Um, and you know, for him to actually confront his past. And obviously we see him confronting his past a lot in this movie. And I think that while it is definitely on the nose, the idea that he is compartmentalize literally compartmentalizing all of these ghosts in boxes in his head um i still think it works uh, because it explains how he's been able to live with himself for um this long even though he's still being haunted he still has this power um and i think that one of the really effective parts that i liked of danny's backstory was that was this part earlier on when he's working at a hospice and um he has found a way to sort of use his abilities for in a good way, in a in a positive way, which is like comforting people in their moments, uh, in their last moments, in their moments of death. I thought the part with the cat on the bed was I, the whole the whole the whole sequence was very poignant and I thought was very effective. Um, and so I liked that part of him. Um, you know, again, getting to use his power in a way that he hasn't really gotten to before. He he only associates yeah. it with. Um, this this terrible experience that he had at the Overlook Hotel and seeing that he can use it in a different way, first to help these people in their last moments and then to help Abra, um, I think is the part of the arc that works for me. Even if, yes, some of the other stuff like his alcoholism and whatever's going on with this baby, um, maybe. <laughs> um, I don't think anything's going on with that baby, man. Yeah, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Um, no, we won't. I'm going to we'll go check the subreddits and see. Um oh, yeah, but I, I think that part maybe was a little bit lacking, but um, that that other part is the part of the arc that works. Yeah, I, I agree that if there's one thing that I have to pick out that I thought was really effective, it was the the scene at the hospice and and him finding his way to use his powers for good, so to speak. I mean, maybe not good like Abra is going to later in the film, but but good in his own way and coming to terms with it, with his powers in that way. Because I think that as much as the compartmentalizing and putting things into boxes works one of, one of the things that i think isn't necessarily unexplained but is a little bit harder to wrap my head around is that he put all those demons all those ghosts all those spirits so to speak into those boxes years ago like decades ago and yet now he's still turning like he's still afraid of those shining powers he's turning to alcoholism you know one night stands with like you know meaningless relationships with with people 
and creating those connections that to hide away from those abilities. And it's not because these spirits are haunting him anymore. It's just because he's afraid of them. And so I think that if you talk about what's effective in terms of, even if I think it's underdeveloped, uh, what's effective is that this is his way of coming to terms with those powers. You know, I don't think that he's afraid or being haunted anymore at this point that he gets to the hospice, but he hasn't yet found meaning in his life to associate with those powers, which you know he's been dealing with for 30 plus years at that point. And so I think that that is, to, to speak to that scene, that is a really effective scene. And I and think I th that, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and I think that's why he has to do what he has to do at the end of the movie, because even though he's may not be haunted by them anymore, they're still there and he has to, erase them release forever. them yeah yeah and i think i think that's fair i i think that uh maybe i would have liked a little bit more exploration of the effects and that i don't have to just kind of piece all these parts together and, and make some jumps to get to those conclusions and maybe i'm not being fair enough to, to the film but i think that i would have liked a little bit more psychological exploration of some of those parts but you know you're already alluding to that climax so why don't we talk about the final act of the film full spoilers if you haven't seen dr sleep uh, not that this should surprise you, even though it surprised Scott, apparently when we got there, but they do go back to the Overlook Hotel. We have, you know, two acts of the movie. Was it necessary for them to go back to the Overlook? We, we can, we can ask that question right now and debate that if, if, if you think it's worth it. Uh, but they do go back to the Overlook to have this final climactic battle with, um, well, between, between Abra. So you have Abra and Dan, and then of course they are going to confront, uh, Rose the Hat at the Overlook and, and Danny's going to come to terms with his past. Abra's going to come to terms with Rose the Hat. Does this work uh, in the narrative of the story? Is it necessary for them to return to the Overlook? And, you know, regardless of that aspect, is it awesome getting to go back to the Overlook? I do... Mm, I'm torn on this. Okay, I don't think it was absolutely necessary. Like, they kind of had a little throwaway explanation. It was like, oh, well, there's like a lot of magic there, so that's where we're going to go. But I'm glad they went back. I even told Scott Harvey as we were walking out of the theater, once they made the decision to start going back, I was like, oh, like, did we need to do that? But after I watched it all, I was like, okay, no, that was worth it. I'm glad they went back because some some of it sure was like those iconic shots, like the blood out of the elevator and the twin girls in the hallway, like all of that. But also it was, re I really, really liked as Danny is walking through the hotel and we see like those short kind of blips of what happened initially, like when he walks up to the bathroom door and there's the huge hole from his dad trying to murder his mom with Here's the ad, and he kind of sees what happened to his mom. I felt like that was the only jump scare in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So I felt like that was really nice though because obviously since we're going into spoilers he is now gonna put himself into that hotel forever he's gonna die although i guess he's not really in the hotel forever since it's burnt down i i don't know that i fully understood the ending but i to my understanding we think he's gonna die at the end of this right and so for him to kind of go through i think and at least somewhat process and accept and and relive what happened to him i think that that was an important part of his character development and I thought it was a really effective part of the plot. I loved, loved when they went in the maze inside his head. I thought that was so, so cool. Really, really liked that scene, partially because of like the supernatural mind warfare that was happening at the time. But um, overall, I liked the decision to go back to the Overlook and I felt like it paid off. Yeah, I agree with Danny. I think that um, 
the explanation and the plot for why they do it was a little confusing. Like he says to Abra, yeah, the explanation like, makes no sense. He, yeah, he, he's like, it's dangerous for people like us, but it might be more dangerous for someone like her, like talking about Rose. And I was like, but why? Yeah, I know. I, I, like, it seems I, like it'd be much worse for you. <laughs> yeah. I, t I turned to my girlfriend and watching this video. I'm like, is that good logic? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. But anyway, but I think they still need to go back because for the thematic reasons that we we're talking about of like, he's got to release these ghosts. He has to like, e even though he's compartmentalized them, they're still there. And this is a piece of him that uh, he will never get rid of unless he, you know, literally goes back and burns it all down. Um, and so I think for that reason, it is necessary. And yes, I mostly enjoyed the trip back to the Overlook. I think that um, there were a couple parts like, so the blood full of elevator I thought was a little egregious. Like she just walks in, like looks yeah. at the elevator and then like keeps walking. I was like, did we really need that for any reason other than the nostalgia? Um, it's the nostalgic trip, dude. I was, I felt the same. Yeah. And then the other part I thought the, the bar scene, I thought went on for way too long where he's having a conversation with a barman who like is maybe his dad, maybe not. Like it was, it was, I want to talk about confusing. this. I want to talk yeah. about the recastings in a second, but go ahead. It was a little confusing to me, probably because they didn't do as good of a job with developing Danny as we've talked about. Um, and so I think that scene maybe could have worked a little bit better had they done that. But uh, it just seemed like a little drawn out when they were like on a, you know, they were on a pretty uh, tight, tight, tight schedule when they get to the overlook. I mean, Rose the Hat is coming and they need to be prepared and everything. And it's just like, why are you chilling here at the bar for 10 minutes? Um, I don't know. It was just a strange scene, but I think other things worked really well. I loved the callback to like, in my opinion, one of the greatest shots in, in the history of cinema. When, when Danny rides his bike around the corner and sees the twins sitting there, they have a nice callback to that with Abra walking around the corner and seeing that. Um, I appreciated that. I, I love the, I love that they brought back the music from the original shining. Um, I was telling you all this beforehand, but when they were driving up the mountain to go to the overlook and the music kicks in, I was like, Let's go. I think even if you're not a huge fan of The Shining, that's going to get you going. Just hundred uh, percent. Yeah. So, so I liked that st stuff. I mean, and and even if I didn't see it coming, I was glad that they went back because I do think for thematic reasons, um, it it uh, it made sense. And I think that they did a good enough job establishing uh, again the new story, new characters, all of that ahead of time um, to make me think, okay, they're not just doing this for the shameless nostalgia. They have a purpose for this, like this is important to the story. Yeah. I think to Danny's point, I think when, when they first, when I, well, I expected them to go back to the overlook hotel. First off, when I walked into the movie, uh, I was like, well, I mean, they're going to do it. Like, Good I for you. And, well, no, it wasn't even like, a, Oh, I'm clever. And I figured it out. It was just more like, they're going to do this. Like it's a sequel in 2019. They're going to do it. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but to Danny's point at first, I was like, I don't know if like, do they need to do this right now? Especially with that explanation didn't make any sense to me, but thematically, Scott, I totally agree that, that it worked in the end because it's not because of the underdeveloped nature of Dan's character. It wasn't clear to me yet that part of the narrative arc of this movie or the drive of this movie is for him to release needing to release those demons in his head, basically those spirits, but also of course coming to terms with his dad, like clearly in retrospect, they're like, okay, these are super important things to Dan's character, but they're not given that much airtime earlier on in the movie. You get what that one speech, Danny, that I think you referenced earlier when he gets that eight year token for sobriety and he gives that speech about his dad. But before that, 
it's not clear that he's still wrestling with that aspect of his personality. It's not surprising that he is because obviously it's a hugely formative and traumatic experience of his childhood, but the movie doesn't give it that importance and that weight uh, until, until the end when he's having that long conversation with, is it Lloyd? Is it like who that, who knows who it is. Right. Uh, and one of the confusing parts, but so I guess before we get to that in a second, but like one of the things that I did really enjoy about the over, because I, I think they did do it well with the one exception of the blood elevator scene, uh, which seemed just a uh, total, total nostalgic uh, moment, which didn't really work for me. I was kind of rolling my eyes and I was worried like, okay, this isn't a good sign. If this is what the rest of the rest of our time at the overlook is going to be like, and they do have plenty of other callback scenes. I mean, and one of the things that we're talking about in a second is just like how Danny becomes Jack for part of the movie and how Abra becomes Danny. I think it's a really interesting, uh, I don't know if you call it a callback or evolution or what it even means. Maybe, maybe it means nothing at all. Uh, other than just the callback to those to those moments in the original film, but I think that uh, I I think they did the rest of the Overlook really well. I think that you know that scene that you're talking about, Scott, where Abra rounds the corner, sees the twins. I mean, that makes sense in the plot of the movie, you know, because uh, those spirits have been released out of out of Danny's head at that point, and so that moment makes sense. And then you know from there, everything just seems to be done really well. I think it's the the cinematography of them going up the mountain. Uh, with the music playing in the background, perfect nostalgic callback. I think the rest of it, it works quite well. And I think that I'm satisfied ultimately with the ending. Danny, you said maybe the ending didn't make much sense to you. To me, my read of the ending is that he died in the hotel. He's a spirit now, not unlike how Dick Halloran is a, was a spirit to him, giving him advice and guidance over the years intermittently. He now seems to maybe be doing that for Abra going forward. And don't know if we're going to get another movie in this universe I don't think this movie is going to be doing well enough to get a sequel, uh, even if Stephen King um, approved of it, which I don't know if he would or not. But yeah, the movie's not doing that great at the box office, I don't think. Uh, Shame. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I think it's underperforming expectations, but uh, we'll we'll see uh, once the weekend fully ends and they get the, the numbers in for that. But overall, Danny, I don't know if there's another piece of the ending that, that confused you necessarily, but uh, I'll, I'll throw it over to you now to, to air that if that is true. First, when... He's like chasing her and she's like, I know you're in there. And then he like snaps out of it. Yeah. I have no idea. Like we've never seen any of them able to do that before. Yeah. So it seems like to me, he was like being possessed by the spirit of the hotel, which right. is not something that we said. Well, I guess, I guess maybe what the movie's trying to say is that that is what happened to Jack in the original movie. Like he became possessed by the spirit of the hotel. I don't like, we don't know that's for true, but that's just my, that would be my guess. But what confused me is that he lets these spirits out. He tells um, Rose that they're starving. They mm -hmm. eat, like eat her. They kill her. But yep. then they don't kill him. They just decide to like let the hotel possess him. That just like made no sense to me because it's like, okay, if they're starving, like they're going to just go for him too. Mm -hmm. well, I think he's like up and running. I was confused. Does he not just like get away from them? Like, no, he's like pinned on the ground. Yeah. Like, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Yeah. So that so that for me was super confusing. And then he's able to like snap out of it for a second to like not kill Abra. That was confusing. Yeah, I think that's the confusing part. Because at first I just thought, okay, he's dead. He's now a spirit part of this hotel. Right. But then, and then to your point, like there's the scene where she, I don't know, brings his consciousness to the to the front again. It was right. I, I, it I was very confusing. Supposed to show how powerful she is. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But then he yeah. like snaps out of it himself though when he's down in the boiler room. Right, because he's still fighting back against the hotel. It's just trying to stop the boiler room from 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 exploding. 
Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But one of the other things I do want to talk about is those recastings. And he obviously Mike Flanagan recreates some of those iconic scenes from The Shining with new cast members. So you don't get Jack Nicholson. You don't get Shelley uh, Duvall. You don't get I, can't, I should have looked his name up. Uh, Danny Floyd, I think is his name. I'm not sure the kid. Uh, but did you guys I thought that was kind of strange. I didn't really fully understand the purpose. I'm not saying that they should have brought like Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall back and the kid and like de-age them or anything like that to recreate those scenes. I'm just not, it was just a little bit off putting to have all these uh, characters recast, even though I understand, especially for Dick Halloran, they didn't really have an option. Um, but what did you, what do you guys think of that? The only part that bothered me was that barroom scene. I th- like, I think the stuff with Wendy was fine. I, I liked the stuff with Halloran. I thought that Carl Lumley did a good job with that role, mm-hmm. but the bar scene was weird. I, Cause like, I just couldn't tell what they were going for. Like when I first saw the guy, it didn't even occur to me that they were trying to make him look like Jack Nichols. It was only like after a few minutes of the scene going on and them shooting him in profile a little bit that I was like, Oh, they're trying to like, this is supposed to be like, maybe this is supposed to be Jack. Like this guy kind of looks like Jack Nicholson. Like I I was just very confused about what the scene was going for and who this character was supposed to be because like Jack Torrance is never the bar. Like he's not the guy behind the bar and the shining at any point. So I I was weird. Yeah, I agree. I felt like I remembered seeing that shot at the end of the first movie where they they have all the people and he's like in the photo from however many years yeah. back. 1921. Yeah. And I remember like when he was behind the bar, I was trying to remember like, wait, was he when he was in the hotel, was he supposed to have been a bartender and not a guest? Like I, that I agree, Scott, was just confusing as far as like why they tried to do that. Um so about, about the bartender, the, my interpretation after having seen Dr. Sleep is that, and thinking more back about The Shining as well, is that I think the bartender is just whoever you want the person to be, right? Like Jack wants someone to tell him that you know, he can drink and like do whatever yeah. he wants and like be the man, like not listen to his wife and then, you know, deal with his kid or whatever. And I think that, you know, Danny walks into the gold room and wants to find his father. He wants to talk to him. He wants to figure out you know, why he did all the things that he did, come to terms with it and have that confrontation. Again, I think it's a huge conclusion. And maybe, maybe that is what Mike Flanagan is going for, what Stephen King is going for here. It's not clear. And I totally agree that it's not, it's not something that's immediately apparent or makes much sense, but that's like the way that I've been able to make sense of that. Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes sense there. I mean, they definitely, they have the conversation about drinking and I, I think that's probably it, but it just felt like it. I think it would have been okay if it was in a short, if it was shorter. Again, it just felt really prolonged and at a time in the movie when the tension should have been ramping up instead of like taking a cool down. Which sucks because I think that that is supposed to be a climactic scene yeah. for Dan. And yeah. so that's, and I think that's part of the underdeveloped nature of, of the whole arc of, of, of Danny. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about Dan, which is probably right because the, the arc is about him. There were a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. We are running a little bit long on, on our review at this point, uh, but we do want to run them by you. One of those things is, of course, the true knot. Like, we haven't even talked about them, about this whole gang of quasi-immortal beings who go around and torture children with the Shining to drink their steam, which is their Shining ability so they can prolong their own lives. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, of course, we've talked at length about her character, but this group overall, you know, that's something that I think is worth talking about, as well as Abra's arc, which may be a little bit less nuanced that we could probably skim on that one a little bit. But I do think the True Knot is something worth thinking about. One thing for me that was lacking with the True Knot 
I overall loved them. Overall thought it was really cool. Like I liked this identifiable villain. I liked uh, kind of seeing them interact. It was like a weird environment and I, I enjoyed that. The part that I was confused about is we've never heard any sort of explanation as to how some people's shine abilities are different than others. So we've heard about like different strengths of shine. Like Abra's is obviously very, very strong. Um, Rose is also pretty strong. But then like they called some of them lookers and some of them pushers. And I never understood like, okay, well, what are all of these powers? Like, do they fully do different things or they just are better at different things? I just, that was the one part of like the true not arc that I just felt like I didn't understand i feel like maybe they could have done something where they had um halloran come back in and have to like explain to danny you know all the powers or something just for, from like a viewing standpoint like i felt like i needed some kind of explanation of that but overall i really liked them and i liked watching rose lead them I yeah i don't that... think this movie needed more telling and not showing but i yeah. do think that yeah the I think the, the the whole idea of what snake by Andy's power, like shining abilities are, if they are shining abilities, it's maybe they're not shining abilities. Maybe there's something completely different going on there uh, versus like someone like Abra, who I think the looker term is just, she was able to like go in and see, and she's just, that's just like a, a word they called someone who like, I don't even know, like shined into their moment. I, I don't know how to describe that. I don't know if that's necessarily an ability and more just like she saw the situation. So they just called her a looker, but Scott, you were going to say something. Well, no, I agree. I think that, I actually thought that kind of worked for me because I think that when a movie like this, when you have these supernatural powers going on, sometimes movies like set their own rules and guidelines. And I think the danger with that is those rules often end up getting broken when you need to advance the story or when you need to take some sort of turn in the story. And so I like that they were kind of like, we're not going to really explain like the full extent of these powers. Just some people are more powerful than others. We're not going to say like, here's what they can do. Like, because we're not going to limit ourselves in that way. Um, I don't know. I, it, it just worked for me. The, the lack of explanation perhaps worked for me because I think um, again, you set rules and you're in danger of breaking them. I think. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle uh, between the two of you here, maybe leaning a little bit more towards Scott, because I think part of the thing that I really liked about the true not thing that I like about world building in general is it, it builds up this sense of lore and and mystique to the world and not understanding all the different types of shining abilities and not understanding each one of these individual characters that you see in the true knot I think really lends itself to to the intrigue of them because honestly when you actually get their backstories or learn more about them they may not be as interesting as you think that they are anymore uh, some of them might be ordinary people and I think that the one moment that you get a little bit more understanding of where they are when you have grandpa flick cycling and is about to die and you get this whole kind of monologue from rose the hat about how he you know he was a king he lived through i mean literally millennia from the way she was describing it and i think that that gives you the real scope and range of what this group has done and who they are and i think that if you got not to say that you couldn't have gotten more from more more than that and it's still been interesting but it's that level or that depth of understanding alluding to literally thousands of years of history for this group that I think it was done well enough for me to enjoy that. That being said, I do think at times some of it's just like you just have to kind of raise your hands and accept that whatever is going on is going on, right? Whatever Andy's snake by Andy's powers are, are different from Crow Daddy's powers, which are different from Rose the Hat's powers. And maybe there is some through line of similarities across powers, especially between like Rose or Abra. But 
there is some, some disconnect there that I think it definitely could have had more explanation. For me, though, I think ultimately I was still satisfied with the True Knot as a group. Maybe the shining spectrum of powers maybe needed a little bit more, uh, needed a little bit more there. But the True Knot as, a, as an organization seemed interesting. And obviously the allusion to the fact that there are many other people like the True Knot out there still. Uh, if that is true, if that's not just something that Rose Tat was saying, I think that's super interesting as well, too. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I last thing I'll say about them is that I just I like the contrast of like the hospice scenes. We have this idea that like maybe death isn't the worst thing, right? Maybe death can be comforting. Uh, and I think that you get the other side of that with them, which maybe living forever isn't necessarily a good thing. So I like the way that that kind of uh, those two storylines kind of complement each other. And that and that honestly, that calls back a little bit to Pet Cemetery, kind of some of the just. Think th- discussion of the afterlife in that movie. I did think about a couple times when I was watching this. Well, speaking of Pet Cemetery, guys, I do want to ask a final question before we end our wrap up phase. Where does this fall in the range of Stephen King adaptations? We can talk about that generally. We can talk about that in 2019. I have a very strong opinion uh, for this year about where it falls. But uh, Danny, what do you think? Do you think this? Well, I guess we'll start with 2019, and then also in the overarching range of, of Stephen King adaptations, where you think this sits. Yeah, so for 2019, it's my favorite. Um, that's the first thing I said to Scott Harvey once we finished. I was like, of the three we've reviewed now, this is my favorite. I think that even though, yes, there were some aspects of like character development and stuff like that that were lacking, mm-hmm. I wasn't really at the movie so much for the character development. Like, I liked the action scenes, I liked the yeah. supernatural elements so much. Yeah. That w- where it lacked, I think it more than made up for. I think that we had identified, you know, some complaints with Pet Cemetery and with It Chapter Two, and I felt like while I still had complaints for this movie, they just weren't as significant to me because I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, so this is definitely the best we've seen this year. I mean, I liked Pet Cemetery more than y'all did, I think, but this is in another league. Uh, I think that Pet Cemetery, and I talked about this at the time, was kind of a good meat and potatoes horror movie. Like it wasn't reinventing the genre. It was just, you know, a successful horror movie. This I think is doing something new and original. And I really appreciate that. Overall, Stephen King adaptations, I, I mean, it's not as good as Shawshank, but like uh, that's not horror either. I think as far as the horror ones go, this is definitely up there with like the first It and with The Shining and with the original Carrie as like some of the best um, Stephen King adaptation. So uh, I was very impressed with what Mike Flanagan did here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you you bring up you both bring up really good points. Like, like in, we didn't talk about the action very much, but you know, when we talk about our favorite scenes here in a moment, I'm going to yeah. talk about one of the Same. one of the action scenes, and that's because the action in this movie is up there with some of like the best action movies that we've seen this year, if not better than, in my opinion. And that's one of these things where, like, I walked out of the movie, and I, I think you can also say similar things about the original Shining. But this movie, for like modern day horror movies, like any other horror movie we've talked about on the podcast this year, and even ones that we've seen that aren't, like this is this movie is barely a horror movie. I mean, this is like a horror drama action movie, psychological um, thriller almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely leans way more towards psychological thriller than horror. If there is, a, if that is one spectrum of the broader genre, but to me. That is why, and I'm not surprised to see this, that it's its audience score is in like the mid 90s. And that's because it's, you know, it's not relying on jump scares at any point in the movie, except for maybe that one, if you even call it a jump scare, uh, when they flash back to I can't I can't call it like archived footage because they reshot it, but that that scene where Jack is breaking down the door of the bathroom from the original shining, that's like a jump moment for sure. But besides that, there's no other traditional jump scare like that you would expect in any sort of modern day that you got in pet cemetery that you get in it chapter two for sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I really appreciate. And 
maybe that's why this is definitely by far my favorite Stephen King adaptation of the year. I'm, I'd have to go back and check my score comparison when we get at the end of this, but even more than the score, I think is going to reflect. This is a movie that I expect to go back and watch again in the future. And I really don't think I'm going to go back and watch either pet cemetery or it chapter two. Uh, again, I, maybe I'll revisit chapter one, but probably not chapter two. And so that's all to say that I really, I really did love this movie. Um, that it, it definitely has its weaknesses, but if, if you're going to see, go see a mainstream hor- like horror movie this year, I mean, this is probably it. No, oh, well, I mean, I guess if you're not counting Midsommar. And That's ma- not mainstream. mainstream yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I wish it were. I wish it were more mainstream. You're right. Movie, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, let's enter our wrap-up phase here. Danny, what was your favorite scene? Uh, now that you said, Scott Shelton, that yours is one of the action scenes, we may have the same one. Cool. My favorite was when they trapped the true knots in the woods and picked them off one by one. Yeah. That was so satisfying. Obviously, it ended very, very sad with uh, Billy, yeah, Billy dying. But oh, yeah. I had a visceral reaction to that. I was like, I thought that one of them, I thought that Billy was going to die, but I did not think he was going to die that way. So yeah. he got into that point in the scene and he hasn't, and he wasn't dead yet. I was like, oh, great. Like, we're not going to live here. <laughs> Yeah, I swear. So, like, I saw when the two, when Danny and Billy were walking out from behind the trees, I swore that I saw someone, like, back in the distance. And I thought that that's where Crow was because we hadn't seen Mm -hmm. him yet. Yeah. And so when they killed the girl, I was like, oh, like, don't rest too easy, dude. Like, Billy, like, watch out. He's going to come. But then it turns out he wasn't there and she just got him. But I still thought that was the best scene. I liked the action of it and. It was just like I, I liked the kind of mind game tricks and stuff like that. It was really cool. Yeah, no, I that scene is amazing. I was gonna say that scene, but I'll say a different one. Scott, you go first. Yeah, no, and I'm, maybe I'm gonna take yours now, Scott. But I I really like the scene in Abra's room with uh, Rose the Hat where she. Uh, opens the drawer and gets her hand stuck in the drawer. And then yeah. we see uh, uh, Abra like going through the files or whatever and like destroying uh, Rose's hand basically. And then she just like shoots her out of the window and like, like flying all the way back to where she was laying on top of her trailer and like knocks her off of the trailer or whatever. And it was, yeah. it was hype. And, but I also, I, I want to also want to shout out, there was one shot that I loved um, when grandpa flick dies, there's like an overhead shot of him as he's dying and you see him like dissolve. And there's like a, it's like this really somber scene and he like dissolves. And then there's like a one or two second pause. And then all of them, you just see all of them like dive in and like attack his uh, steam and start eating his steam. And I was like, oh man, that's kind of terrifying. Like they, yeah. they couldn't even like pause to mourn for like two seconds. They were like the rabid off. hunger of them. Yeah, yeah. no, I think it, it's a really this. I mean, you talk about visceral responses to earlier. I think that's a visceral image as well, as well as like almost all of, I think all of the, the production value and all of their torture scenes where they're, as a group kind of consuming steam. I think that those are really well done. It gives you a really visceral sense of who these people, if that, if we can even call them people uh, are. And I think it works really well. It actually wasn't the scene that I was going to say, although I think that is a fantastic scene too. Uh, It's slightly different. I'll take one shortly after the scene that Danny talks about. And that is when uh, Danny finally accepts his, his shining abilities again, uh, locates Abra who's been drugged and is in the back of the van with Crow daddy takes over has Scott, I think that you referenced this in your letterbox, Drew, a 
really great use of their of your token f word in a PG thirteen. No, movie. that was in Jojo Rabbit. Oh, it was in Jojo Rabbit. And well, I still thought rate, it was. This movie's rated R too. Oh, it is rated R. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, it has a great use of the f word, yeah. uh, uh, even if it's uh, even if it's not its token one. Where he's talking about this, <laughs> I haven't had a hangover like this in eight years, um, and he's in Abra's body, which is just really disconcerting at first. And you can tell at first that Crow Daddy has no idea what's going on, and he's like, "Oh, it's someone different possessing her," and then. Uh, course runs his runs his van off the road killing him very satisfying moment uh as kind of all those deaths were that you know from the scene that danny was talking about and so no this the these kind of action well full action moments from what danny's talking about and these kind of like quasi action moments that i think scott and i have referenced i think they really contribute uh to the overall quality and, and engagement that i felt in the film and uh really speak to the fact that we've just talked about three three scenes that are all a little bit action related really speaks to uh, when this movie does flip over into a more action-focused film, it crushes it. Awesome, guys. Let's put a score on it. Danny, what are you giving Dr. Sleep? Okay, I think that my two other scores were below. Well, I know that they were below this, but I don't know how far below. So this might be a little inflated. That's fine. I'm trying to be internally consistent. <laughs> so I'm giving this a flat nine. A flat I nine. That like I said, even though there were some aspects lacking, I love the rest of it so much that it pushes it up to that nine uh, level. Totally. Scott, what about you? I think Danny is in my head like Abra was in uh, Rose's head uh, because I'm also going with a 9.0. I think that we have critiqued the movie maybe a little bit more than we have some movies that we love. Uh, but overall, okay. there's a ton of movie here and so much of it is is fantastic and something really original. So uh, this is in my top 10 of the year at the moment. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this one's also in my top 10 right now. Uh, like I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, a lot of movies still to see that might end up pushing it out of the top 10. But I'd be surprised if it doesn't make my top 20 by the end of the year. I'm giving it an 8.5. It's a really, really good movie. Uh, of the movies that we've seen over the last month, unless I'm forgetting a really obvious one, uh, I guess Parasite would be maybe the one exception here. But of the mainstream movies that we've talked about in the last month or two, I think this is one that you should definitely go see. This is really worth it. And like I said, if you're if, if you ever shy away from horror, the horror genre, I don't think that the horror elements of this movie are, are going to set you off. That should just about do it for our review of Dr. Sleep. Let's take a short break. And when we return, we'll be dialing through some news and a trailer or two. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. We will get to news and our trailers in just a moment. But first, Danny, Scott, biggest thing happening in the coming week for sure, regardless of what news. Honestly, I don't know if anything, any news could come out that would be bigger than this. And that is that Disney Plus is releasing on Tuesday, uh, probably actually the day this podcast goes up. And so want to kind of go around the horn again here and hear from you guys. What are you most excited about with the release of probably... You know, we have a bunch of uh, other streaming platforms coming out in the next year or so, but probably the one with the biggest fanfare because it is, you know, it, it is Disney. Danny, what are you most excited about coming out on Disney Plus? Um, I'm most excited about all of the Marvel stuff. I mean, first, just like ha having it in one place is really nice. You don't have to like get on four different streaming apps to see what 
um, movies are available. Um, I know that they're putting Endgame on there. So I'm excited to watch that again because I never got to go to the theater and do the multiple watches like you guys did. So I'm super excited to watch that again. And then, yeah, just a lot of those series that are coming out. Um, I know they're doing the WandaVision, which I'm super excited about and everything like that. So big Marvel gal, excited to see all of that. Scott, what about you? Well, obviously, I, I want to watch all the back episodes of uh, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, so I'm super excited for that. Um, well, I'm, I'm actually not. Back I was going to say, are you that, joking? But, like you, yeah. you, you've really let in there, like you're joking, but I'm not sure that you are. I will probably watch some of them, to be quite honest. But uh, no, the thing I'm most excited for is the Star Wars stuff. Um, equally, not surprising, perhaps, but um, Mandalorian obviously is going to start dropping. The first episode will be up on Tuesday, and then I think the second one comes out on Friday. So. Um, I'm super excited to see what they um, can do with Mandalorian because the trailers have all been fantastic. And then moving forward, um, the Cassian series and the Obi-Wan series um, are, are all going to be awesome, especially because, it, you know, it sounds like with Benny Weiss leaving Star Wars now that uh, we're going to be on a little bit of a hiatus for sure with the movies. And so these are going to be the things to tide us over um, until we get whatever the next trilogy of movie is, is going to be. And uh, if, as long as they're good, that's, that's fine with me. Cause honestly you can do more in these series than you can in a movie. So, well, you say that we might be on a bit of a hiatus, but I'm not sure that we will be. And we can talk about that in a second, but no, for me, I mean, obviously I'm super excited about Marvel and star Wars. I mean, the Mandalorian for sure, in terms of launch content for a streaming service, I don't know if you could get more bang for your buck. And so that's super exciting to have that come out because that looks like the kind of that gritty star Wars, feel that I think a lot of Star Wars fans have been asking for just to, them to go a little bit darker. I mean, I don't know if it'll technically be R because it won't, it won't be, but the themes that they're tackling, right, definitely seem darker and grittier than what we've gotten in any of the the, the Star Wars mainline movies I've gotten. I haven't watched any of the animated TV shows, but I assume that those aren't going super dark either. So I'm very excited to see what John Favreau is, has been able to put together. You know, of course, we have a bunch of different directors who are coming in and directing some of those episodes, including Taika Waititi, who I think is doing the season finale even mm -hmm. of, of The Mandalorian. So that's very exciting. But for me, if I had to be different than you guys, I'm just really excited to have the full collection of Pixar movies. And, and also, I mean, to be fair, the Disney Animation Studios movies yeah. as well. Uh, I think that, you know, as I've as I watch more and more animated features, uh, every year, I realized that I just really like animated movies. And that's something that, I, of course, I watched a bunch growing up and I've seen my fair share of Pixar, though not all of them, but I'm really excited to have those kind of all in one place and and planning just in my free time that I don't have to go back and watch, you know, as many, uh, definitely all the Pixar movies, but as, as much of the Disney ones as well, because really well-timed, we do have Frozen 2 coming out in a couple weeks. Frozen will be on Disney Plus on Tuesday. So that'll be exciting. So I can watch it there rather than having to, you know, rent or, or, or purchase it on iTunes or something like that. So I'm really excited to, to get to watch all those animated movies that I think I've missed over over the years, particularly the last like probably 10 years where I was too old to go to be cool and watch animated movies. Uh, but then now re having realized I also kind of like animated movies. So I need to go back and watch all those. Yeah, I'm with you on that, too, because I um, was not like as a kid didn't watch many of like the Disney animated classics. And so I've yeah. come to a lot of them later in life. Um, and so, I, I mean, I have seen, you know, the major ones and really enjoyed a lot of them, but there are some that I haven't seen. So, and some Pixar's that I haven't uh, caught up with either. So. Yeah, totally. I, I, and to your point about Star Wars here, just jumping back there for a second. You know, I think everything that I've heard is that Benioff and Weiss have been out of Star Wars for like six months. And so 
in that time is when we heard the release dates for those Star Wars movies, particularly well, the we thought would be their trilogy series. And so I think that Disney has already been planning for them to have left, if not knew they were leaving six months ago when they signed that Netflix contract for, I don't know, it was like $900 million or whatever the hell it was uh, for a certain number of years at Netflix. But I think that Disney has been planning for that. So if it's not Kevin Feige getting one of those spots, if it's not his Star Wars movie getting one of those spots, I think they're going to have something for those spots because there's no way they are throwing away like three Christmas release dates in the next six years. So I think they're intermingling them or interweaving them with with the Avatar sequels. So I'd be shocked if we don't still get the same release schedule for Star Wars movies. It's just really unclear right now what those movies are going to be. I mean, whether Kathleen Kennedy will even be at Lucasfilm after episode nine comes out, I think that would be a moment for her to step away from Lucasfilm and, and just kind of the full sale takeover replacement, so to speak, of of her leadership at Lucasfilm. You know, maybe that's Kevin Feige. I don't know. Like We don't know who it's going to be. But I think that I'd be really shocked if we don't still get Star Wars movies at that same cadence, along with whatever series they're coming out with on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I mean, we do have the Feige movie. First of all, why are they doing those Avatar sequels again? Uh, but uh, we do have the Feige movie, I suppose. Bob Iger did say something this week about like that there's going to be a hiatus. But I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to follow through on that. But even if they okay. do... We have the TV series, so I'm, yeah, we'll see. Uh, I'm looking forward to whatever uh, we get. But that Feige movie should be good whenever we get it. Yeah, you, you might be right. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. You know how long they've known that they're leaving and whether they would sacrifice those release dates and what they would put in their place. I don't know, but there's no way Disney's not going to have a Christmas, a like blockbuster Christmas release every year. So if it's not going to be Star Wars movies, it's interesting to see what they're going to put there. Yeah, who knows. All right, we can switch over into news now. Uh, of course, Benioff and Weiss being out of the Star Wars unit, uh, franchise. Uh, specifically, I think that's one of the biggest pieces of the news of the last two weeks uh, since we last recorded an episode. But there's other stuff as well, including and, and if you talk about you know Disney tangent things. Well, this is technically Sony, but Spider-Man property. We heard that the Spider-Verse sequel date has been set for April 8th, 2022. A little bit disappointed that it's not sooner than that, but I trust the quality uh, and, and the process over there at Sony because... They have Lord and Miller coming back to produce that movie, just like with the first one. And they have Joaquin Dos Santos coming in to direct that sequel. He is most famous for being a director of a large part of the La Avatar The Last Airbender animated series and all of the Legend of Korra animated series, both of which are widely touted to be some of the best, if not the best animated shows of all time. So really fantastic talent. Uh, they have, uh, I think they also have the writer for Wonder Woman 1984 going to do that as well over there and so a lot of really high quality talent of course we're going to be having a large part of the main cast we're going to have miles morales's character coming back apparently the movie might be about his relationship with with gwen stacy with spider gwen and how that's coming in so probably betting money that you're going to see a lot of that crew from that first spider-verse movie coming back probably nicholas cage as well with spider-man noir uh and, and you know anyone anyone else over there as well so really excited about that film we also heard that Ant-Man 3 has been confirmed with Peyton Reed returning to direct. Only like the second director to be returning uh, to direct the third movie in their in their sub-franchise. Because technically, technically, not even uh, the Russo brothers did that because they took over from Joe Johnson, who did the original Captain America movie. So really, really rarefied error over there for Peyton Reed getting to kind of finish off his sequel. I think James Gunn might be the only other person who's getting the chance to do that. 
We also heard that Ridley Scott is going to be directing a movie, uh, I guess a biopic of sorts about uh, about Gucci, uh, of course, of the famous clothing brand line. And that's going to be starring Lady Gaga as an estranged wife who orchestrates her husband Gucci's assassination in the film. It's her first acting role since A Star is Born. So clearly, you know, we loved her performance last year as Allie in A Star is Born. It'll be interesting to see what she does with maybe in some ways a little bit, you know, even more meaty of a role there if she's playing this kind of uh, estranged, psychotic wife who uh, is estranged, it's not deranged, that's the right word I'm looking <laughs> for there, uh, wife. Uh, we'll see what she can she cook up there. We also heard in, in other franchise news, Fantastic Beasts 3, Scott, uh, I know Fantastic Beasts, uh, The Crimes of Grindelwald was your favorite movie from 2019. Yeah, uh, we heard, or 2018, time. sorry. Uh, that's going to be, that's finally going to begin filming. We reported earlier, not, we didn't report this, but we talked about earlier this year that that's being delayed and isn't going to hit its We original. broke the story earlier that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you read no other news outlets, we broke that story <laughs> for you. Um, but we did hear that it's going to be filming. Uh, early next year, and we'll have Steve Cloves, who actually screenwrote the all like the entire original Harry Potter series. Uh, he's going to be joining J.K. Rowling, putting that script, and so maybe we can write the ship a little bit there with the with the development arc of some of these characters. And we have heard that Jude Law's Dumbledore is going to play a more central role. In fact, might even be the lead role in Fantastic Beasts three, and I'll have a large portion of the movie set at Hogwarts. So that would be a huge shift from the first two movies. Uh, and of course, introducing in the second one, uh, Jude Law's Dumbledore and getting a glimpse of Hogwarts. But if we really shift away from Eddie Redmayne and towards Dumbledore here, I think that could be a recipe for getting people back on board with something more recognizable, especially like Hogwarts, getting people more interested in going back to that universe. Because, you know, it's on a, it's on a downward trajectory right now, that that franchise. And as a huge fan of Star Wars, or Star, I'm also a huge fan of Star Wars, a huge fan of Harry Potter. Uh, I really do want them to write the ship for that third one, especially if they do plan on still making five movies, which right now it's not looking like uh, a very financially feasible endeavor for them unless they write that ship. All right. Two more pieces of things. And the last one is going to be what we're going to talk about. Batman, the Batman and Matt Reeves Batman movie. We've heard all the, all the, it seems like we were talking every week about this movie, but they have some more cast news here. Colin Farrell is going to be playing the penguin. Uh, I think that's a really interesting piece of casting, not one that I necessarily expected, but he, I think he could really do something with that. And then maybe more interestingly, Andy Serkis is going to be playing Alfred, which another totally out of left field casting uh, for me, I think. But I mean, interesting. We're writing out the cast here. We'll see where else they take it because they think they're still looking for their Riddler. I don't think that they have that Riddler role locked in yet since. Well, isn't since Paul Dano going to be the Riddler? You're right. Paul Dano is going to yeah. be the Riddler. Yeah. So maybe the casting is done now. I don't know how many more people there are unless they're going to cast like the Joker or, or, or someone else. Uh, I did hear some crazy theory that, you know, maybe they maybe they bring Joaquin Phoenix in as no, the Joker, but there's literally no, zero percent. No. There's no, there's in my opinion, there's zero percent chance that that happens. That ain't uh, it, Chief. Yeah, it also would be horrible. I cannot imagine Joaquin Phoenix agreeing to do that. Um, anyway, our piece of news that we want to discuss today, James Dean. Uh, just check my calendar to see when it is that he died. But apparently he died a long time ago. But apparently he's going to be starring in a movie uh, coming out soon. And that's because he's going to be digitally brought back to life using CGI for a Vietnam War movie. And his role is going to be significant. It's not going to be a Grand Moff Tarkin role. It's not going to be a Princess Leia role from the like Star Wars Rogue One. It's going to be much more significant. It's going to be a, a, either a lead role or a supporting role in this film. And that is crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. Guys, Scott, 
I mean, Danny, feel free to jump in if you'd like to, or if you just want to observe Scott loses his mind here in a second, probably uh, I'll leave it up to you. But Scott, what do you, what do you make of this? I'm not going to lose my mind, but I will say the most absurd thing about this whole story is that the directors or, or whoever is responsible for this movie, I don't know if you saw this, but they were like, yeah, we had a ton of like, we looked all over the place for our, uh, you know, who was going to play this role. And ultimately we settled on James Dean. So, so basically what they're saying is we decided, we looked at every living actor and decided no, no living actor is right for this role. The only person that is right is somebody who's been dead for like 50, almost 50 years, probably. Um, it's absurd to me. I think that it's, I mean, first of all, it's taking roles away from far more deserving actors. Um, not, not, I mean, you, you all, the only thing you have to do to be a more deserving actor than James Dean is literally be alive. But, um, <laughs> but so there's that standpoint. And then I think from an ethical standpoint, like is, is James Dean's estate really okay with this? Would James Dean himself have been okay with it? This, I mean, I, I don't know about not. James Dean, but clearly his estate is okay. I mean, yeah, I guess so, but, off on yeah. It. but I, I think that that is just a bridge too far. And like, I, I don't like the precedent that that sets going forward that, hey, like, why would we have any new actors when we can just, you know, bring back uh, Marlon Brando or something like it's that's not the, the narrative that we need to be having um, in film going forward, uh, because there are so many exciting young actors and actresses um, working right now. And um, I guess James Dean was young when he died, but that's not what I mean when I say young actors and actresses working right now. I, I don't think this is the right way to go. Yeah, I'd much rather Glenn Powell get this role. Yeah, sure. I mean, go down the list. I mean, yeah, he's he's one of many names. Just someone who came off the top of my head who's like young, charismatic, mm-hmm. could be a, a rogue bad boy. I don't know. Maybe I'm making it up. We'll see in Top Gun Maverick next year whether you can pull yeah. it off. But yeah, Danny, yeah. do you have any thoughts to contribute to this one? I just agree that I think it's crazy. Yeah. It's just crazy. I'll leave it at that. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, Scott, I know that you 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 referenced Marlon Brando. I probably because if you were reading anything about this, there was reported that like Marlon Brando actually had his like full body like shot in in 3D or something like that. So that in the event that something like this might happen, he could be he could be one of these people. Like he could be the next James yeah. Dean. Being that's a different that's a different uh, situation, I think, because obviously he has like signed off with it. Exactly. No, I think that that's a good point. Uh, but you know what? When you die, just make sure your state's on board with what you want with your uh, future casting roles in movies. As shocking as that might be, no one's ever really gone. <sighs> Shut up. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's shift gears here to to at least one trailer. We have two trailers on our list here, but we'll we'll see how we're doing on time. I think we're running pretty long, so maybe we'll just do one. Scott, the trailer for Soul, which is not Pixar's next movie, it's their next movie after the next one, uh, releasing I think in in June or, or just the summer uh, period. In uh, yeah, actually, no, it is June. I think it's like June nineteenth, twenty twenty. It's Soul. It's uh, starring uh, Jamie Foxx is the lead voice member of this cast, and it's uh, about a, a, a jazz teacher who's coming to terms with the fact that his where he had expected to be in life and where he wanted to go may not be happening. Uh, and then we get this trailer. We learn a little bit more about the tone, the atmosphere, and the story of this movie. And we'd love to hear what you think of it, Scott. Is this something that's getting you maybe more excited than something like Onward is, which is Pixar's next film? Yeah, I think I'm a little more excited for this for Onward, although the, the first trailer for Onward was a little bit better than the teaser. But um, yeah. yeah, this looks interesting. I 
like the the music and everything seems like it's going to be good like the trailer Jazzy. music was great yeah uh i like jamie fox's voice seems to complement the character really well the only thing i'm a little concerned about is that it maybe gets kind of into similar inside out territory a little bit with the guy like confronting his soul obviously you have like the the no, you uh, haven't even seen inside out but i know the concept of the movie like you have the emotions who are um you know like talking and everything sure. um and so I think there is a lit that is the vibe I, I got a little bit when I was watching this trailer. Yep. Um, but I think it's a cool idea and I like seeing some diverse um, casting and diverse characters in a Pixar movie because obviously you have an African-American lead here. So, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I, I mean, Scott, this won't come as a surprise to you at all. But with Pete Doctor directing this, I mean, Inside Out's my favorite Pixar movie. And so to to this being his first animated feature directing again since that and having his taste and flavor, which really seems to really hit the heights of what I'm looking for in, in the Pixar movies or what I enjoy the most in Pixar movies. I'm really excited about this. This trailer g gave me exactly what I wanted. I think it, it gave me the introduction to this lead character that he is going to be wrestling with his internal feelings, his internal emotions, which definitely is, you know, is similar to something that we saw in inside out. But Scott, I think that if you go watch that movie and then you go rewatch this trailer, I think that the emotions that it might be looking at or exploring are very different than what you get in Inside Out. And I think that's apparent by the fact that the the entirety of Inside Out is basically taking place inside of a child's head, right? And the difference here is that you're having someone who's much older, much more experienced in life and dealing with very different stages of development in life and thinking about like, what is your legacy? What is, you know, how does yeah. your motivations and your goals align with what's actually happening in your life? And I don't know exactly where this movie is going to go, where it's going to take you. Uh, maybe ultimately it will feel too similar to inside out. I, we'll have the discussion next year when we talk about it, but this is really promising. And I think that I'm, I think that I'm really going to love this movie. All right, guys, that should do it for episode 64 of some like it's got Danny. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? My Instagram is dekunk with two K's. <laughs> And, she got uh, Juju to like her photo, so I did get Juju to like my photo. I'm famous, guys. It's fine. <laughs> All right, we'll sit with that. Dramatic pause for everyone to see that. In all right, Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Yeah, Scott, I hope you didn't think I was going to let this episode end without me bringing up, even though I know you don't care that much, that uh, Tennessee made it 33 of the last 35 over Kentucky last night. Um, Pure domination. Last night's game was kind of pure domination. Pure domination. <laughs> Historic, what are you historic, talking about? No, no, historically pure domination. Okay. 33 of the last 35, 81 to 25 in this in the all-time series. Last night's game was close. Uh, but Tennessee pulled it out. So go balls, one more win, and we're bowl eligible. That's my parting thoughts. Well, we'll see if you get it. I mean, we should beat Vanderbilt. Did you beat them last year? Well, we were much worse last year than we were. I know. I'm just, I'm just screwing <laughs> with you. Um, all right, Scott, where can, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Scarby Dent. Cool. And you can find me at, at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at Media Plug Pods over on Twitter. Check us out. Follow us. Uh, and then you can also find us on our Patreon page. That's at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers. You can check those out. Find what's right for you. Help contribute to the podcast. And again, that's www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. We also do have our Star Wars Countdown podcast as the time of recording. We just dropped part five of our countdown that's the empire strikes back my opinion slight spoilers best star wars movie uh, of all time but check that episode out and we're continuing to release episodes every single sunday uh not but usually in the morning 9 10 a.m 
uh, depends on when I actually set the for the release. Sometimes I mess that up because I'm terrible with technology sometimes. Anyway, check those out, and that will be all the way leading into Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker there, that huge culmination of the Star Wars franchise. Uh, you can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean and on Spotify. You can find us everywhere pretty much at this point. If there is somewhere that you can't find us, let us know, and we can try to get it on that platform too. And we're, we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz. And I have said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week with our review of one of the movies that's already attracting a lot of Oscar buzz. That's Ford vs. Ferrari. Until then, however, for Scott Harvey and Danny Kunkel, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.